Hey, Mountain. Good to see everybody. Glad you're with us. Can we just say hello to everyone at all the other campuses? Everybody just greet everyone. So say hello, Edgewood, Abingdon, Mountain Road, Bel Air, wherever you are, Arena Club folk, online. Glad you're with us. Um, my name's Ben. Uh, so uh, maybe you heard about the middle-aged woman from L.A. She had a little heart problem, and she had to go in for a little surgery, right? And um, she got really nervous. And while she was nervous, she had this vision, from, vision of God. And she says to the Lord, she says, am I going to die in this, in this heart surgery? And God says, no, trust me, I got this. No problem. You're going to live another 30 years. She's like, really? 30 years? Well, while I'm in here, I might as well take care of some stuff. So she gets a little plastic surgery, a nose job, liposuction, Botox in the lips, the whole deal. She looks fabulous. She gets out of the hospital. She's walking to her car. Ambulance comes by, runs her over, kills her dead. She gets up to heaven. She's like, God, what's the matter? You told me you had 30 more years to live. He looks at her and shrugs and says, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you can use that. You'll use that, won't you? Question for you. You suppose if, if Jesus, like, walked in here, we would even recognize him? Would you recognize him? I mean, like the real Jesus. Do we really know who he is, what he looks like? I mean, he's kind of like Gumby, you know? Like, remember Gumby? Little green guy? You can just bend him any way you want. Is that what Jesus is? You just sort of make him up to be whatever you want him to be, like he's a spiritual helper, he's a, he's a sort of a self-help therapist, he's a, He's sort of a sentimental friend. He's like a painting. He's like a stained glass window. Would we, do we really know the real Jesus? I wonder about that sometimes. For me, I grew up uh, with flannel graph. I went to Sunday school as a kid. How many of you remember what, anybody know what flannel graph is anymore? The teacher would get out this flannel board and then like pull out these little paper cutouts of the figures and put them on there and be able to act out the whole story. Y'all knew when the one came out and had the white robe and the blue sash and the Fabio hair and the nice trim beard. It was, who's that? It's Jesus. Everybody knows Jesus, right? And then backed out the story, you know, he turns water into wine. It's like, is that okay? But he did in Sunday school. And then back in the envelope. And I feel like for some of us, that's how Jesus is. He's like a two-dimensional, flat Stanley Jesus. Kind of visit him in a story at Sunday school sometimes. I wonder if the real Jesus showed up, if we'd recognize him. Over the next several weeks, we want to do our best to, to get the straight dope on Jesus. To just try to, to hear the good story, you know? Hear the whole story. And we're going to hear it from a guy named Mark who knows Jesus really well. He knows the story really well. 
And I, I, I predict it's going to debunk some myths and some set aside some preconceived notions that a lot of us probably have about Jesus. But it's not just for, as I know some of you are skeptical, you're like, I'm not sure I buy this whole Jesus thing. And I know some of you are like brand new Christians and you're like, uh, I, I don't know, I've got a big gap in my understanding. But I think it's going to be really helpful for those of us who, we've been walking and knowing Jesus for a while, I think it's going to be helpful for us too. Isn't it funny how something can be there in your life, but you never really, you just don't notice it for a while? You know what I'm talking about? You stop seeing it. Like, it could be like a picture that hangs on the wall in your parents' house, and it's just like, it's always there, but you never really notice it anymore. It's just always there. Or like the neighbor's house across the street. Like, it's always there, but you never really look at it, even though you drive by it every day. It's like that, right? And, and you know what? You can do that even with people. If I can be like, sort of transparent with you for a moment. My wife, Carla, is the love of my life. We lived together for 30 years. Uh, But you know what? Sometimes, truth be told, I kind of think about her sometimes more like a a picture that hangs on the wall. I take her her for granted. I I think anybody who's been married more than a month knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) Just like part of the furniture. It's kind of there, you know. If you ask me, it's like, oh, I'm blessed, you know, we're happy, you know, we're, this is great. But there's this, like, muted sense of appreciation and awareness of who she is and what she's there, you know. Not really noticing, not really hearing each other, not really, like, being filled with wonder about this amazing person right in front of you. And I can tell you, if I'm completely honest, that we had a little period recently where we, we noticed this was happening. And that doesn't work for a relationship very well. We kind of sensed it, and we said, you know, we got to do that. We had to put some energy and urgency around this and figure out, yeah, this is, this is not right. we got to do more to see and hear and take care of and, and, and pay attention. And what happened was really, really beautiful. And, and as we talked about things, we had this kind of breakthrough where all of a sudden this person who was almost like invisible but there now is like looming and large and right there in front of you and, and important and significant. And you wonder, like, how, how, how could I have missed that, you know? It's like that song by Andy Grammer. I really like the, the song by Andy Grammer. I play it all the time. He's got a song called Fresh Eyes. It's about his, his honey bunch. And, and, and he, he says, I've got these fresh eyes. Never seen you before like this. Oh my, you're beautiful. It's like the first time when we opened the door before we got used to usual. He says, so suddenly I'm in love with a stranger. I can't believe that she's mine. Now all I see is you with fresh eyes. Fresh eyes. I'm sure there's somebody that needs to hear that, you know, just for your, I don't know, there's a husband or a wife or something that needs to hear that. Someone in your life or a family member, you see, you know, I've been taking them for granted. I've got to see them and apprehend them in, in a special way. But listen to me now, listen. What is infinitely more important is that every single one of us would have the opportunity to see Jesus with fresh eyes. To open up our minds and our eyes and our hearts to actually see who he really is. Like Jesus is deceptively familiar to everybody in our culture. Everybody, we, we kind of think we all know him. But to really look at him. And so we're going to go to Mark. And we're going we're to have, have a good story come to us. And we're going to see that he's not a Gumby that can be formed in any way. He's not, and get him off of a two-dimensional paper cutout Jesus to a three-dimensional living, breathing person who's right there. And you're like, my gosh, how could I have missed that? To fall in love again if you never have with this fearsome, 
shocking, surprising, strange, hard to follow and understand, but crystal clear person, Savior, God, named Jesus. Fresh eyes. Because for 2,000 years, the central claim of the Christian faith has been that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the, is the center point uh, of human history and at the same time the organizing principle of our lives as Christ followers. And so if that's true, everything hangs on Jesus, his life and his story and all of that, then it makes sense that we would want to get to know him, that we would want to understand him and, and see him with fresh eyes, follow, trust, and obey him. And it turns out that the best and ultimately only way to do that is by going to those good stories that are collected together the historical documents in the Bible called the Gospels. If you ask me, I get, to say, I get asked this question all the time. Hey, where should I start? Or I, I'm kind of a, I don't know, I want to check out Jesus. I'm not sure I believe any of this, but I want to look at it. Or I'm a brand new Christian, where do I start? I, I always say the same thing. I always say, just get, get a Bible and uh, you know, get it on, get it on you know, your, your audio so you can listen to it in the car. Or, or just better get it out and read. You know, I've got this old Bible that's got pages in it and stuff. You ever seen one of these? You can get one of those if you want. And you, and just read a couple of verses or read a chapter, read a little bit out of the Gospel of Mark. Because it's like hanging out with Jesus. It's just like hanging out with Jesus. I hope you want to hang out with Jesus together over the next several weeks. Because that's what we're going to do. Mark. Let's talk about Mark for a minute. Who's Mark? Was Mark one of the 12 disciples? No, he was not. He, um, he was... A little bit later than that, just a few years, he was like a little kid in the first church. Grew up there running around. His uncle Barnabas was around all the time. He was really close to uh, Paul, ran around with Paul a lot, falling out with Paul, got back together with Paul later, um, and really close especially to Peter, Peter who ran with Jesus. In fact, what we know is that almost all of what comes to us through Mark is from Peter. It's an eyewitness account. Isn't that cool to know that the thing we're looking at is, is from the perspective of someone who is as close to Jesus as anyone could be in Peter. It's the oldest story we have, and therefore we think it's probably even the most sort of original. Mark is first, and Matthew and Luke probably had Mark in front of them as they sat down to kind of tell their stories. I want to encourage you to read this story of Mark along with us. And a lot of you I know are in a study right now studying Mark. It's one of the reasons we chose it for this series as well. Well, a couple things about Mark as you read along and as you kind of hear, get used to this. He's a funny storyteller. He's, he's very fast-paced and urgent in the way he tells his stories. He's like a little kid who's so excited. He's like, oh, and this happened, and this happened, and then Jesus went here, and then he did this, and then look at this, and immediately this happens. He just kind of like, he can't, he can't catch his breath. He wants to show us that Jesus is fast-paced, a man of action. This is not a... Th- philosophical treatise this is not a theological statement this is a sort of like you better work hard to keep up with Jesus because he's moving and that's the way Mark tells the story in fact the word immediately is in there over 40 times isn't that funny he's like he's like and immediately this happens and immediately that happens and that's how he tells the story of Jesus in fact he tells a lot of it in the present tense instead of saying that's what happened he says Jesus goes here and then he says this and it's like present tense like it's happening right now because he wants you and me not to think of Jesus as somebody from a long time ago he wants us to sort of walk with him right now in fact Peter was the one who later would say Jesus is the one we're going to follow in his steps and so that's Mark one more thing It's written to a bunch of Christians in a church, probably in Rome, probably about 65 A.D. 
And they're suffering really bad under some persecution. The emperor Nero kind of made sport of Christians, throwing them to the wild animals in the Colosseum. It's tough being a Christian back then, kind of underground and out of the way. And they need some encouragement. And so he says, I wanted you to hear the story again. So he tells them the story of Jesus to help strengthen their commitment to him. And that can happen for you too. Especially if you feel like sometimes it's hard to live out your faith. Like it's like you're being persecuted sometimes by maybe some family that doesn't understand or a culture that just increasingly seems to disrespect who you are and what you stand for. You know what? This will strengthen and encourage all of us. Let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Mark starts out. By the way, have you ever read the Christmas story? You ever read the Christmas story in Mark? Raise your hand real big if you have. Don't, don't, don't raise your hand. Sorry. Because I just tricked you because there is no Christmas story in Mark. In fact, he didn't have time for the Christmas story. He's not going to start with the birth and all the history. It's like, ah, blah, blah, let's just get on with the Jesus stuff. Go to Matthew and Luke if you want to do that. So, you didn't read the Christmas story in Mark because there isn't one. In fact, here's where it starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how he starts. The beginning of the gospel, or good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God, he says, guess what? God has broken into history. This is not a closed system anymore. God is here. Status quo has been ruptured. Jesus has arrived, and now anything can happen. This is a new beginning. In fact, I think as, um, as everyone in those days would have seen it, they would have caught something that maybe you missed. I don't know. Maybe you caught it. The word in the beginning there, it, it, they would have said, oh, I see what Mark's doing here. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Remember how the whole Bible starts? In the beginning. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so how does Mark begin? In the beginning. Because he's trying to say, you know what? God's doing a new thing. There's a new creation going on here. He's starting up something. And here it comes. It's all about Jesus, a new creation, beginning something new. A couple of words, he says, gospel. What's that word mean? simply means good news. So, so, so he, he's, not, um, he's not really preaching a sermon. He's making an announcement. And the announcement is God's here. You've been waiting on him for 400 years we haven't heard from anybody, any prophets or the Israel was just sort of sitting there waiting under the, under the boot of Rome. And now here comes Mark saying, it's happening. Good news. Good news in those days also was a way to describe a huge epic-making event, like a world-changing event. Like when future Emperor Augustus was born, it was described as a gospel, meaning this is something that's going to change the world. So Mark's saying, here we go. God's about to change the world. He's trying to answer two questions. Who is Jesus and what difference does it make? And so that's why he uses words like he is the Christ or Messiah, depending on your translation. It's the same exact word in different languages. And it just is translated different ways. So you can call it Christ, Messiah. It means exactly the same thing. It's the one God had promised I'm going to send. And when he gets here, he's going to kick my plan into place. And it's all going to come together. And you can rest your hopes on the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who's coming. And guess what? Jesus is here. Mark doesn't want us to guess. He's saying it's him. Right out the gate. And son of God. Meaning, don't, don't mistake him for any other kind of prophet or miracle teacher or somebody walking down the road, you know, with some crazy idea. This is the Son of God. There's divinity here. Now, Jesus' favorite term of himself would be Son of Man, and he'll use that to refer to himself to remind us that not only is he fully God, he's fully human. It's a pretty big deal. 
This is who he is. If you take the book of Mark like a loaf of bread like Jesus might and break it right in the middle, you come down to chapter 8. There's 16 chapters in Mark right in the middle. The first half, uh, 1 through 8, is Jesus down in Galilee talking to the crowds and, and he's the king and the powerful son of God doing all these miracles and gathering people. But right there in the middle is a break point and he says, and he starts turning then toward Jerusalem where he's going to go and die. And you know what? There, there's, a, there's a sort of break point there and we're going to spend a little time in the first half and we'll spend a little time in the second half but the cross looms over the whole thing well that midpoint also has another really important crux in it take a look at matthew chapter mark chapter 8 verse 27 jesus has completed his first ministry down in galilee and all that now he's coming toward jerusalem and right there in the middle of the loaf mark chapter 8 verse 27 and following here it is Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others the prophets. There was confusion, in other words. And then Jesus asked this question, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Friends, this is the most important question Mark wants us to see. And you're going to be asked this question over and over again if you hang around with Jesus. It's the most important question you'll ever answer. What are you going to do with Jesus? (laughs) Who is he to you? You can accept him, you can reject him, but you can't ignore him. And there is a right answer and a wrong answer. It's not sort of whoever he is to you. Peter says in verse 29, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. What's your answer? You're going to be asked that again and again, not just with words that come out of your mouth, but do you know him in a way that you would say he's your Lord and your Savior, your friend? Who do you say that I am? With that question looming over the whole thing, Mark takes us back in. Let's go back to verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah, that was a prophet from um, about uh, several hundred years earlier, 700 years or so. He quotes Isaiah now, and this is what Isaiah had to say. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. God says, I'm going to send one one day. When the Messiah is about to come, I'm going to send a messenger to get you ready. And he's going to say, a voice calling him in the wilderness, he's going to say, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The Old Testament said there would be a forerunner, someone who would come, and Mark says that guy's name is John. Let's go ahead and take a look at the, uh, the next verses, because before we can get to Jesus, John steps in front of the camera. Verse 4 and following. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They were so hungry. They could have stayed in church and just played, played their religious games the way that some people like to do, but they were so hungry with this hopeful idea that God might show up and do a new thing that they went out to hear a crazy man in the wilderness saying, you better get your life together because God's going to show up and you're not ready. 
So they went out, and what did they do? They confessed their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Sounds like a poor college kid. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is a big index finger. My dog used to be so stupid, I'd point and he'd look at my finger. Like, no, dummy, look where I'm pointing. So don't get caught up with John, he's just the finger. And he's pointing to Jesus. He's the forerunner to say, get ready for Jesus. And he's strange, shows up in like caveman clothing with goo in his beard, living off the land, out there in the wilderness with a message that says, you're probably not as ready as you think you are to meet Jesus. It keeps getting stranger. You'd think if Jesus is going to roll out a big new program, that he'd do it with a big splash. Maybe go to Rome, get some politicians involved, maybe some celebrities, use his power, do his first miracle to get everyone's attention, and then kind of roll from there. But he doesn't. He goes out in the the middle of nowhere, in the sticks, and for a spokesman, for his brand, he chooses this hippie guy with goo and his beard and body odor. It's like, seriously? And no big speech, no big miracle to proclaim himself. Instead, he doesn't make a big splash. He makes a little splash, literally. Look what happens next, verse 9 and following. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Kind of crazy, isn't it? God here to start something new on the planet. No fireworks, no big banquet or speech or parade, no TV coverage, no Twitter feed. Just quietly, almost anonymously, stepping in line with the rest of us, stragglers and strugglers, humbly submitting to the waters of baptism, not because he had impurities that needed to be washed or sins from which he needed to be forgiven or repent of, but to say, I'm one of them. I'm one of you, and I align myself with you to humbly submerse myself into the way of God. And maybe this is why he would later go on to command all of us to be baptized. Matthew says it's the right thing to do, to submerse ourselves in the humility that is required if you're really going to go God's way. As Jesus was dipped beneath the waters of the Jordan River that day, I feel like he was just saying, I'm all in. You can't get baptized sort of part way. I'm all in. Are you all in? Are you all in? This is Jesus. He's not here to be your sort of spiritual buddy when you need him. He wants to know if you're all in. And then something crazy happens during the baptism. Remember this? The father can hardly wait to bless and sort of like sing the praises of his son. There's this voice from heaven. You are my son, and the, and the words literally mean, I delight in you. 
You bring me joy. I love you. That's my boy. A blessing clarifies Jesus' identity and gives him blessing. And then there's the dove representing the Spirit of God fluttering and hovering about. And again, everyone would have said, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. It really is a sort of second creation. Go back again to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So you got this water stuff there, and what do you have show up? The Spirit of God was what? Hovering. In fact, the old, uh, the old Hebrew Targums say that the, the Spirit of God was there like a dove fluttering over the waters at creation. And so at the beginning, you've got the first creation, watery mass, nothingness, Spirit of God hovering and fluttering. And here at Jesus' baptism, God shows up in the Spirit again, hovering like a dove over the Jordan River to make sure we understand what's going on here. There's a new creation. God's going to bring something out of nothing. And at the first creation, the sky is ripped open with the voice of God. He speaks and stuff happens. Order comes and creation happens out of that wild and here in the wilderness. The same voice tears open the skies again. God's words are powerful, my friends. If God says something, it's going to happen. If he says it, it's true. And so he's starting something here in Jesus. And you better know about it. This isn't sort of like, do I believe it or not? He says, you better figure it out. And you better say, you know, you better get on the program. That's what, that's what Mark wants us to know. God is creating. And then it's one of those immediately moments. Now, in your text, it's probably all neatly divided up in paragraphs with a new heading. So you're kind of like, oh, that's a good place to stop. It's not a good place to stop because the very next word is immediately after that. Look what happens. It's meant to connect here. Verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He's still dripping. He's walking up out of the water, and now he's out in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. What a rude awakening. And he was with wild animals, and angels attended him. No more doves, just wild animals. And everyone, everyone who's ever followed after Jesus and gone into the waters of baptism themselves has had pretty much the same experience. It doesn't take that long after the fluttering doves and the water on your face to find yourself in the wilderness. You go all in and you've yielded your life and heart to God's territory and your spiritual enemy isn't going to give up without a fight. So you, get, you give yourself over to Jesus. You've got a target on your back. And you find yourself facing all kinds of temptations and demons and voices telling you to go away from God and give it up. Matthew and Luke tell us a lot more about all the temptation. Mark's pretty brief. He just says, yeah, it was out there. It was tough. His wild beasts. I don't know if wild beasts means he was with animals because his friends and family weren't there to support him. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. You're all by yourself. Or maybe, maybe it was a sort of nod to the, the Christians who were literally being thrown to wild beasts to say Jesus had his own suffering. I sort of think it was just sort of like a way of saying that's somehow the way temptation feels to you, you know? Like a wild beast coming at you. There was an old guy, an, an Egyptian uh, Christian back in the third century. And, and, and his... His idea of, of, suffer, of temptation was, he says, it's like a lion roaring at me. It's like a snake that keeps hissing at my heels. It's like a, a wolf that keeps ravaging. It's like a bull that wants to gore me with his horn. And that's how, I said, that's how it is for me. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? You ever feel, you ever just feel like you hear the roar of condemnation in your head? Like you stupid idiot. 
You're such a failure. You're such a hypocrite. You're such a liar. If only they knew. It's like a roaring lion coming at you. You ever felt just gored and gouged by your past sins or stuff you regret from the past? You're just stupid things and, and it rips a hole in you sometimes. You ever think you finally outran that besetting sin? Like, I think I finally licked it. And then you look and there it is like a little snake nipping at your heels again. Or a wolf that that just ravages you. Or the temptations that rage within. It's like wild beasts. And Jesus says, I know. And every Christian says, I know. Peter who tells this story through Mark, says, I know. First Peter 5, 8. Stay alert, every one of you. Stay alert. Don't, don't get sleepy on me now. Watch out, because your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, a wild beast, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that you're not alone in this. All the family believers is going through the same stuff you are. So you hang in there. When you walk out of baptism, you've got a target on your back, and you're going to get out in some wilderness area. And, and, and just remember, Satan, he doesn't care about you. He's just trying to get at Jesus. He's just trying to use you to get at Jesus. That's all. You're not that special to him. Now, you don't have to worry. Scripture reminds us, greater is he that is in you and me than he is in the world. You don't have to be running around scared like it's some poltergeist movie with head spinning and vomit flying. You don't have to worry about that. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And as we're going to see in future weeks here, in future chapters, at the name of Jesus, even demons, they just tremble and flee. But that doesn't mean you're not going to have some struggle and temptation nipping at your heels. Satan's going to go to school on your tendencies. He knows your weak link, do you? He knows the chink in your armor, do you? He knows where you're vulnerable and weak, do you? And what he wants to do is just separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. When our kids were little, I remember Carl and I, one time we were... We were just hugging in the kitchen, and they started this game. They kind of came up, and they, oh, no, no, they came, and they wanted to, like, pry us apart and get between us. Just start all three of them worming in there, and we're, like, kneeing them in the head to get out of here, kid. And it became a game, which eventually, when they got to be bigger than we are, we lost. But that image reminds me of what your spiritual enemy wants to do with you and the love of the Father, to work his way as a wedge between you. And he always does it with a voice in your head. Remember back in the garden, God said, hey, this is all good. I love you. I'm right here with you. Okay, you can have everything. Okay, except this one thing. That'd be bad for you. That'd be really bad. And what does the tempter do? He comes and he starts talking in their head. Hey, are you sure that's really true? Are you sure God knows what he's talking about? Why don't you try this? And the next thing you know, the love of God is separated. It's not that they ate an apple, folks. It's that they got separated from the love of God. And the same thing happens to Jesus in the wilderness. You are my son. I love you. And the next thing you know, the tempter is going, are you sure? If you are the Son of God, why don't you just prove it? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, jump down. If you are the Son of God, bow down to me. Same stuff. He gets in your head. He got voices in your head. And you got to decide which voice you're going to listen to. And what I love about Jesus and how he succeeds in the wilderness is he doesn't use any supernatural powers. He doesn't call upon his Captain Marvel Jesus stuff to do it. He uses only the stuff that you and I have available to us as well. He calls on the word of God and he remembers who he is because he heard it in the water. And if you have given your life to Jesus Christ because of what he's done on his cross, it means that you also have the same words that were spoken over Jesus spoken over you. You also are a beloved child 
of God. And God would want to say to you, don't you ever forget it. Jesus was there in the water and God just boomed out of the sky. This is my son. I love him. I delight in him because he knew that there would be criticism and condemnation and voices of temptation and all kinds of stuff so that no matter how hard it got, no matter what happened, Jesus could stand firm because of who he was. You've got the same thing. There's two voices. There's two voices for all of us. Which voice are you going to listen to? The voice of Jesus has made us his kids. Romans 8 actually says, And you received God's Spirit. That fluttering dove, it hovers over you now. And you're an adopted child. Now we call him Abba, Father. He's our daddy. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Satan wants to drive a wedge and wiggle between. But you hold on to that truth, friend. Don't let it go. Your significance is not in what you do. It is in who you are. And who you are is not defined by what you do. It's who Jesus says you are. And you are his child. Otherwise, listen, if you let Satan get in your head and you start listening to the wrong voice, it's gonna, you're going to start letting that define you. You're going you're gonna to start trying to prove yourself through your accomplishments. You're going to start prove yourself by your moral goodness. You're going to start prove yourself by, by how good you are, by how cute you look, or how sh- in shape you are, or your titles, your important friends. And you're listening to the wrong voice because that drives a wedge. Because we, we have so much angst today about my identity, my worth, my significance. And it's this, folks. It's this. This is it. It's why. Because we have allowed the wrong voice to tell us what we have to do to be somebody, to be significant to be real, to be powerful, to be good. And you can't do anything to change any of those things. So when we hear the voice, it saves us from having to sort of listen to our colleagues for the next time they say, good job, you got a raise, good, good grades, nice performance, you won the game. You get the promotion. And then if we hear those things, we sort of feel like, oh, I finally have, I finally have some worth and some value because we validate ourselves. And we spend our life in one frantic attempt after another to accomplish more and win and succeed, to prove that we really are somebody. And this is what happens when, when the kids move out then. It's like, who am I now because I'm not a mom anymore and I don't know who I am? Or someone I love dies or goes away and it's like, I don't know, who, I don't know what my worth is anymore. Or others... Voices from the past because of your abuse or some critical condemning voice rises up and tells us we don't measure. And it's all these voices, all these voices, and you've got to decide which voice you're going to listen to. My friend, the God of the universe is doing a new thing. He wants to do a new thing in some of us today. And here it is. The Spirit of God hovers over you. And if you will believe in this Jesus Christ, through Him you can be adopted into the family and rescue and held tight by a father who will never let you go. And he says over you, you are my beloved child. You are my beloved daughter, my son. Every temptation ever dangled in front of your face is an attempt to get you to believe that your primary contentment and identity is found somewhere else other than as a son or a daughter of God. But it's not true. But you've got to decide which voice you listen to. This is why Jesus has come. I think of the powerful words from Zephaniah. 
makes me think of when my kids were little. Carla's cleaning out the basement, digging up all these old photos. It's Throwback Thursday every single day at our house now. Oh, I remember when those little squirts were that big, yeah. Now I don't want them sitting on my lap anymore. They cut off the circulation. (laughs) But back in the day, I'd sit there and read them a story, put their head on my chest, sing to them. They don't remember the details, but I hope it just sort of puts something down in their heart, you know, to hear their daddy singing over them, to know that there was somebody who delighted in them, and that would give them an inner strength and a blessing to carry throughout their whole lives. And then I think of Zephaniah 3.17. Look what it says about God and how he feels about you. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Yes, he's strong. He will take great delight in you. There's that word. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but calm your fears. And he will rejoice over you with singing. I don't know if you're comfortable with that idea of God. But the Bible says he wants to pull you up, put your head on his chest and rejoice over you with singing because he delights in you and he really loves you. You going to listen to that voice? Or are you going to listen to the other voices in your head that tell you all kind of stuff about how bad you are or what you got to do or how good you are without him? I don't know which it is. But I hope you hear the voice that says, you know what, I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I, I, I know every moment of sin and shame and dishonesty and degraded love in your past. I, I know all of that. I, I know your shallow faith and your feeble faith. And I, I know your weak prayers and your inconsistent following. I, I, and I want you to know that I love you. I love you just as you are. Not as you're going to be because... I love you just as you are today. Do you really believe that? It doesn't make any sense to go any further. Otherwise, this will just be a study and intellectual uh, information about Jesus. You've got to start right here and realize that the God of the universe broke into this world in Jesus because he loves you. You let that happen, anchors your heart and soul. You get your identity, you get your purpose. Then it makes sense to follow this one into a new life. And then we see everything with fresh eyes. Let me pray for you right now. God, I pray that you will move us to receive the living Christ, the real Jesus. And to see him with fresh eyes, to hear him, to receive him, to want to follow him. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to stop trying to prove ourselves to anyone, most of all to you, but just to really hear and believe your voice that says you love us. Good grief, you proved it on the cross. Help us to receive it now. Help us to receive it and change our lives from the inside out because of it. We pray and all God's people said, amen. Uh, Good word for us. Let's stand together. Let's respond in these moments.